This is Mouth Media Network. Amplify and connect. This episode is presented by Happy Farm Botanicals. Happy Farm Botanicals is a leader in custom solutions for prestige brands specializing in non-toxic and natural formulations. Just a quick note on this episode. It was recorded prior to the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic. While there may be some references which may have a different context now, we believe you'll find the conversation remains highly relevant and useful, and so we're presenting it in its entirety. We hope you're healthy and safe. Hi, my name is David Prada. I'm the founder and CEO of David Prada Brands. I'm also the founder of Materia.com. To me, it's a matter of integrity. While the death knell of the retail apocalypse has been ringing for years, and the casualties have been significant, rising out of the ashes is a new world of vibrant retail. I'm Kelly Kovac, founder of Beauty Matter. Retailers that have failed to innovate are simply not going to survive. Others will emerge reinvented, delivering better stores and more experiences. A confluence of factors, economic, technology, consumer behavior, and niche innovations have removed any concept of structure when it comes to distribution. The beauty landscape has completely changed. The lines between online and offline have not blurred, they've blended. Consumers are channel agnostic, and the very strict rules that once governed the distribution of beauty brands have been totally rewritten. Known for his passion for beauty, contagious enthusiasm, and endless energy, David Parada, CEO of David Parada Brands and Materier, is the secret weapon for indie beauty brands carving out their place in the hyper-competitive category of beauty. So David, thanks for joining us on It's a Matter of. You know, we've known each other a long time. I think we actually met at Barney's on the sales floor about 20 years ago. Yes. Wow. Um, so, you know, what was, you know, for me, you're kind of the, you know, if I had to say sort of like the quintessential, you know, salesperson, like when I see you on sort of a sales floor doing a training or talking about a brand or sort of having a conversation with a consumer, it's such a pleasure to watch because it's almost like you're putting on a show <laughs> and you have such passion and love for what you do. Can you give us a kind of just like a little bit of history on sort of how you found your way, not only into beauty, but into brands and sort of ultimately setting up your own business? Wow. It, it started right out of college. Actually, while, when I was in school, in university, I was working in shops that sold a lot of beauty brands. And I didn't realize it at the time, but I loved lotions and potions and candles and fragrances. But again, what, what really happened is when I moved to, to New York and I had I went to school for theater and also accounting. Well, that, that's not surprising. <laughs> <laughs> so I had both like the numbers side and also the theatrical side. And I started working in an accounting department and one day I just couldn't handle anymore. Everybody had graduated from Rutgers and they were all just very unhappy and unpleasant. And you can tell that they were actually just going through the motions to collect a paycheck and they weren't loving what they did for a living. So I left for lunch and went to a Puerto Rican restaurant in Hell's Kitchen and had two glasses of Chablis and arroz con pollo. <laughs> and I read an article in Vanity Fair about this brand called Natur Bisset. And at the time, I was smoking a lot because I was in my 20s, and I was looking for an oxygen cream, which would, like, really help with, you know, bringing back oxygen to the surface of my skin from, you know, the deplenishment of me, like, having too much fun in New York City and right. smoking. And so I ended up um, walking into Bergdorf Goodman, and I went over, I went downstairs, and it had just opened, the new department had just opened downstairs, and I went to the Notorbisay counter, and there was this older woman, her name was Antoinette Ruggiero. And she was in her early 70s, and she was a true New Yorker with a Queen's accent. And she said, sweetheart, what can I help you with? And I was like, I'm looking for this oxygen cream. And she looks at me, and she goes, you have beautiful skin. She's like, you ever work in retail? And I was like, I did in, in college and in high school. And um, she's like, 
are you looking for a job? I was like, as a matter of fact, I think I just quit my job and never <laughs> went back after my lunch break so I could use a new job. And so um, I started the next day on the floor at Bergdorf Goodman, which how many people can just like walk into Bergdorf Goodman and get True. a job there? And by two weeks in, I was one of the top salespeople on the floor selling um, a ton of Notorbisse. And then um, later on, all the brands started poaching me, specifically one called Sundari. Mm-hmm. And that was Christy Turlington's brand. And, you know, what gay boy doesn't want to work with a supermodel? <laughs> And it's very interesting, you know, she really tried with that brand to modernize Ayurveda and talk about being too soon because Mm. if she had launched that brand today, it would be huge success. Huge. Huge. It was like way before its time and I was very lucky to fall into it because I learned a lot of my foundation for my career because I learned early on that I wasn't really into the heritage brands. Mm -hmm. I was really much into the indie brands. And meeting Christy and her partners and learning about Ayurvedic principles and learning about, you know, your dosha and your pitta and your kapha and all that Mm -hmm. kind of fun stuff. And also learning how oils work on your skin. At the time, no one wanted to put an oil on their face. Mm -hmm. So it did prepare me for when, you know, fast forward 10 years later when I met Linda Rodan and she was launching a face oil line, I knew how to sell it. So can we, before we fast forward to Linda, because I think that's sort of a really interesting, I think almost case study in in you, if uh, I can say that. So, you know, you know, I think salespeople or sales roles are kind of the hardest roles to fill because they're really, you know, kind of the engine, especially for indie beauty brands mm-hmm. that keep the lights on, right? Yeah. So I know you are like kind of a hot commodity. What made you go from sort of like that sort of VP of sales role um, and walk away from the security of a paycheck? Mm-hmm. I mean, indie beauty brands are only so secure, <laughs> but to sort of moving from New York to LA and opening up David Parada brands. And what's that business model? Wow. Yeah. I was fortunate after leaving Barney's, I did work with a showroom when I was the sales director there and the owner was the king at the time of like indie brands. And so I don't think anyone remembers we do, but I don't think anybody remembers who he is nowadays, but he was very much the front runner at the time. There wasn't, there was a handful of indie brands and he had them all. Um, and so when he was sort of Jeffrey Scott yeah, and he was sort of like a one-stop shop totally for retailers, for retailers. And so I kind of like learned from that. I worked with him for a year and then eventually became a VP of a few brands and then moved to L.A. When I moved to L.A., I was offered a few different in-house jobs. And then I realized that my passion, again, going back to living your best life and doing what really drives you and loving what you do, because that's really what brings success Mm -hmm. in life is enjoying what you do for a living. Um, I met this woman named Melanie Mayron. And she was within a week or two living in Los Angeles. I met her tenant. She had a guest house she was renting out to um, a New Yorker who met mm-hmm. me at the DMV. And I caused the scene because they wanted uh, an <laughs> Because you're a New Yorker in totally. LA. Yeah. And then I had security come over to me. And she was like, are you from New York? I was like, yes. And she's like, what do you do? The last five minutes of our conversation, I told her I had worked with a company called Red Flower. She's like, I love Red Flower. Um, and I told her I'd worked for The Art of Shaving and all these other brands. And so she was like, oh, my God, my landlady slash friend has this baby line and she needs your help. I don't know. how. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm helping her on the side. So I met her and I realized my true passion and my calling in life was to help people launch their brands. But you also come from sort of an entrepreneurial family, too. So it wasn't such a stretch. No. Yeah. It's like a lineage of all entrepreneurs, like coming from like my parents and my grandparents, they all had their own businesses. So maybe it was in the cards. It was just a matter of presenting the when. <laughs> the when, you know, I think the when happened when I got to Los Angeles. And at that time, not like today, because there's tons of beautiful brands mm-hmm. coming out of Los Angeles. But when I moved there, there was nothing great yeah. coming out of Los Angeles. Um, I literally um, slept in a fetal position for a year and a half and rocked myself to sleep and cried. I had little tears coming down my (laughs) cheek, wondering when I would go back to New York. And luckily, you know, after meeting Melanie Mayron, you know, you called me about a project and I came back to New York six months after moving to L.A. And 
Um, I met Linda Rodan right after that. And so I started signing really great brands. And then I realized I had a company. It just happened organically. I started with $300 I had to incorporate. Um, listen, at the time, it started with like a banking account with $300, not even a credit card, and just ran with it. Just selling products, loading my trunk with samples and hitting the road and hitting every store, old school style, going into accounts and opening. And as the cash came in, I would get on a plane to another market and open that market up. So it just became organically. And that was um, almost 11 years ago. But I would say that like you probably didn't do a formalized business plan, but no. you knew the business plan in your head once you started rolling. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It just started happening. And I was like, oh, it's just going to be a, a, a showroom brand management kind of business model. And eventually when there's enough cash flow, I'll create the distribution model where I would import brands and then eventually have a model where I would have my own 3PL and then also have my own um, .com and eventually my own stores. And so you're, I would say, <laughs> it seems like you're 75% through so you set up the brand management which you still do which i still do which is still my biggest kind of growing business because it's where we launched um rodan and odin and Ilya, which we still work with Ilya Mm -hmm. nine and a half years later you know we that was kind of the bread and butter of my business Mm -hmm. and it still today is the bread and butter of my business because it's a commission uh, model business and with a small retainer and then um, a few years after starting that, um, I I was approached by an incredible hair care line that had a, a situation with their distributor. Um, and so I literally jumped on a plane to Sweden and made a deal happen and came back to the U.S. and started the distribution side of the mm-hmm. business. Um, and that was seven years ago. Mm-hmm. And during that time, we launched under the distribution umbrella, Grown Alchemist, you know, Sasha Wan, David Mallet, all these amazing brands. Mm-hmm. And now we've launched two new brands from Australia because, you know, I have an I have a, an, like a, an affinity for like Australian brands, for Scandinavian mm-hmm. brands, and then, of course, the European brands. Yeah. So that model happened. Um, and then after that, I was working with 3PLs. And, you know, it's such a big direct-to-consumer business now. Right. And I am the guy that has friends order things from my warehouse and I Venmo them so they can show me what it looks like so they know it's not me ordering it. Right. So they get to keep the samples and I test it out. And I was seeing like all the packaging, even though I, I showed everyone how to pack everything perfectly and how I wanted it, was just arriving to the consumer just in a terrible way. Just like, you know, when I ordered things from Barney's right. in the last few years, it was just a terrible experience. Well, we're going to go back yeah, to Barney's because that's that. a whole conversation. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so that that's why we started the 3PL. In July, I signed a lease. And then in the fall, we got all our licenses from the city of Burbank. So we have um, our own 3PL, which is for our own brand management brands, which mm-hmm. pretty much we work as their 3PL. And then also for my distribution brands and any new brands that are looking for a smaller kind of warehousing um, structure. A bit more hands-on. Hands-on, where they can walk in and see their inventory. Our warehouse manager talks to the owner and lets them know what's going on, what he sees low on. So it's not mm-hmm. only just like, it's very kind of uh, kind of very hands-on. But I think the future of our business is you have to like know everything that's happening. Like my issue with 3PLs is you never know exactly what your inventory is. Right. So. You know, I think, so what you're essentially building is a vertical operation um, sort of on the distribution all the way from sort of the brand is built. So mm-hmm. from distribution to retail and even direct to consumer mm-hmm. um, with your latest venture. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And then for a passion project, I like in the spring of last year, we launched our own beauty website. So that was more more so a passion project for myself because... I'm always working now more so as a CEO versus as a creative. So the Materia website was launched because it was going to be my hobby of the years of me being on the floor at Barney's and finding new brands that you can't find everywhere. We're going to test it and have the consumers test it. And so, and we also have a lot of um, editorial on it mm-hmm. as well. No, it's beautiful. Yeah. So Congratulations. It's like, yeah. It's so exciting because we haven't even pumped in that much you yep. know, re- money into it. And it just organically has grown like 800%. Wow. I think organically is sort of the best way to build. I agree. So let's talk about you know, you have this very solid business and you definitely know kind of what you're doing. 
But we've been hearing about sort of the retail apocalypse, which I'm just sort of like, okay, enough with the clickbait. Like, <laughs> and we hear all these these sort of the death knell of retail, and you know, I think yeah, online is going to grow, and maybe it's just me being nostalgic, but I really think that. You know, the retailers that are going out of business, they just need to go out of business. They do. And there need there's going to be this kind of new way of doing business that's almost maybe kind of a throwback to how retail was that was based on good old-fashioned customer service. Exactly. Um, but I don't think retail's ever going to go away. I don't think so either. You know, it's interesting because, like, when I was looking at my growth – you know, 2019 was an interesting year for retail and also for my business. Um, but like what I've noticed is our dot com business, of course, is up, but our local specialty business is up significantly. So I think people not only are they buying local food and produce, but they're also still shopping locally. And the reason for that is because these small retailers are creating an experience. And I think what's happened to the, all the, the, the stores that are closing is they forgot what their experience was. They forgot their point of difference, and they also lost the ability to kind of relate to the customer. Do you also think that in some cases, these retailers were sort of leveraging technology in a way that was kind of more of a gimmick (laughs) and thinking like, okay, I'm going to add animation and create experience by like this magic mirror, you know, (laughs) instead of like really using technology to, and again, this might be my nostalgia of empowering kind of the people on the sales floor that are selling. So like, why not give the people on the sales floor the same access to information that the consumer has when they're walking in? But it seems like that human connection has sort of been missing. And maybe, and to me, I think maybe that's sort of part of the downfall. That's a little bit soulless. Mm -hmm. Well, no, I think again, I think the consumers also a lot like with with the way social media and technologies happen, I think people are shopping differently and people aren't, they don't know how to connect. So even the salespeople on the floor aren't trained how to connect with humans either because they're also always on their, on their mobile device. And so it's, it's interesting because I think what ended up happening with all these like gimmicks and mirrors and all these things that people are launching, I think every retailer is following each other's trends and they're not, they're, they're following each other. So everyone's doing the exact same thing at the same time. Right. And it's not exciting. And so then it's like, it's so no one goes to any of the stores. They're all empty because they're all doing the exact same concept. And then the salespeople don't even know what the concepts are because no one's even talking to them. So there's this disconnect between like the corporate, the the creative Mm -hmm. team, and then the floor team. Back when I started on the floor, we were the first to know everything. They told us before it was even announced on, you know, to anyone else. Mm -hmm. And so, and also the experience was, you wanted the consumer to walk in and feel like they wanted to stay for a while. Mm-hmm. You know, I remember, like right now, Nordstrom's opened up here in New York City. Right. And when I walked in, I was like, wow, they're actually doing what I enjoyed doing. I loved walking in. When I left Bergdorf's and went to work at Barney's, I loved it because it was a party down there. Yeah. Like people would come in to just listen to great music, to look at beautiful people selling you product. And you didn't want to leave because we were allowed to even order champagne from Fred's for our customers at our counters. And people would stay for a while and spend fifteen, twenty thousand dollars yeah. And then just recently, before they declared bankruptcy, I would go down to the cosmetic floor and the department manager would shush me like a librarian. <laughs> and I was like, excuse me, I'm a distributor selling products here. Why are you shushing me? And I was like, and the reason why I was being loud is because I had seven customers I was trying to right. sell skincare to. And I was trying to get them excited. So the excitement disappeared. And so I think what ended up happening is the cosmetic floor online became exciting. All these concepts became exciting. The floor just lost its soul and lost its way to connect with the consumer. Yeah, I would agree. I think also sort of what happened in parallel to that is, you know, at one point the the beauty landscape and how brands were distributed was it was it was so regimented and it was sort of the law mm-hmm. and all of a sudden it's a bit of a free for all mm. 
consumers are totally sort of channel agnostic. So you see brands, regardless of whether they're luxury, premium, mastige, mass, Mm -hmm. available sort of across touch points, across channels. Like how do you even go about building a distribution channel strategy with your brands that you work with? Well, currently, like back in the day when I started my brand management side of the business, you know, it was very regimented. I think people came to me specifically because of my relationship with you Barney's. You had the access. I had the access to Barney's and Bergdorf's and the right buyers where you would start with your tier A. And you'd just be really strict with keeping it just tight until you launch Barney's or Bergdorf's and after that Neiman's. And you would just segue down the trickle effect of the pyramid. Um, and then now, like we're launching a few brands, luckily wellness is a huge space for me right now. So we'll go into that later. But like a lot of the way I'm strategizing and working on brands is I'm trying to put them into experiential spaces. So in New York, there's a place called The Well. Yes. So a a lot of my new brands are at The Well's retail. And then the West Coast, a lot of my other brands that aren't always sold at The Well are at this other place called Remedy Place. Mm -hmm. So they're both just new wellness kind of membership Soho houses of the future. And so I'm starting with like getting them into experience. Mm -hmm. And then after that, retail, we can open anything. We have to get like what's keeping them interesting is putting them into something that is outside the box so they can get some press and some traction. But then we're like launching them, of course, at like Neiman's and Nordstrom's and all the department stores. So we open them all at the same time now. Interesting. But and you also, I think one of the reasons people come to you is that you also have amassed this network of really interesting independent retailers and service concepts. Mm-hmm. So how did that sort of factor into the building of your business? And kind of in, in if you had to put like percent to total, like how important is securing a network of indie brands from a financial standpoint? It's really important because that's our bread and butter. So um, I always tell every brand when you're developing – so if we go into, say, the majors all too quickly, there's not enough cash flow to sustain unless you're, like, heavily funded. So the balance of opening, you know, one major and then 20 specialty, then you open another major and open another 30 specialty, there has to be a balance because all of the specialty doors are pretty much prepaid credit card. Mm-hmm. And so the cash nice. flow happens. It's so nice. Who doesn't want that? And also, it also takes away the risk factor. Right. You know, with all these retailers closing, you know, all these majors closing, you know, it's it's a risk. So when you're trying to build the brand, and I think that's why a lot of people come to us is because we do work with a lot of service stores, which are salon and spa, as well as some of the best independent concept specialty mm-hmm. stores across the country. We have accounts in Nebraska. We have accounts in like all over Alabama, all over the Southeast. That's amazing. Yeah. You know, it's like, and it, it, it did take 20 years of my career of to course. build that. But um. And, you know, as of right now, I think I've worked with over, I've launched and worked with over 80 brands in my career. Wow. I like made a list, but then I just didn't want to look at it anymore because I was like, oh my God, I it should makes be a, me feel old. <laughs> I feel so old and I should be a lot richer too. <laughs> well, <did you> think- <laughs> I was like, what happened here, girl? <laughs> Do you think, you know, something that, something that I've noticed um, that I find kind of interesting and very hopeful about is that, you know, we've, there's this, all this talk about, you know, The indie beauty trend, which I'm like, yeah, I lived through that in 1996. (laughs) And it's not new. And, you know, I really think of – I think it's probably a little bit easier to launch a brand for lots of reasons. But, you know, I think what has also come out of this is that I'm seeing um, really cool indie retail concepts open. And so do you – am I – Am I imagining that? No, there's amazing. And do you think it's happening because there are so many brands and there aren't enough places? So most indie brands are not going to land at Sephora. They're not going to land at Ulta. So like where do you go? So yeah, so you know, luckily there has been, you know, an influx of a lot of these kind of indie uh, multi-channel doors. Mm -hmm. You know, everyone knows that there's the credos for the all-natural and the detox markets, but you know... Um, in the middle of the country, there's Aliyah, which is she's decided to go after the markets where Credo and 
you know, Folane and, you know, Detox haven't gone into. And those are the markets that, you know, Atlanta, North Carolina. Mm -hmm. She's in interesting places in California, which no one even knows she's there. But she actually has a very strong business model with some of the best brands. It's very interesting because if, I mean, I'm sure you remember kind of how Blue Mercury started. And um, really dates us. I know. I know. I know. Um, But it started in Washington, D.C., which so, you know, I kind of feel like there may be as people are sort of ringing the death knell of retail, we there may be kind of the next Blue Mercury, Space NK, Sephora kind of in the making. And there is, you know, and I think right now there's another one out of Nashville and Houston, and it's um, Lemon Lane. And she has created this concept, which is just so refreshing. She started in Nashville, and she opened her second in Houston, and I'm sure she's someone to look out for because she's going to open so many more. Mm -hmm. We have another strong account that's been around for a while called Citrine in um, Scottsdale, and she has been one of the first, like after the second round of indie, because of course, we when we started, people forget that in the 90s, like in the late 90s, that was the first round of indie brands. Sure, Nars, Creme de la Mer, Bobby Brown, Yeah, Eve Loam, and like, you know, all these were like indie brands. Even the artist Shaving was an indie brand then, and you know, as you you think about it, um, we were there during that time. Kiehl's. Kiehl's. Yeah, these are all indie brands. Wow. Wow. Yeah, I (laughs) know. Oh, wow. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I'm having a moment where I'm realizing how really old I am right now. Um, anyway, let's go back. <laughs> right. But no, so, and then again, there was this kind of, there was a, a small time where there wasn't a big influx. And then the, you know, right after that economy, like 2008, 2009 happened. And then that's when I started my business. The Great the, Recession, the great as recession. the millennials refer yeah, to Yeah, the Great Recession actually was when I started my business. Um, my current job here in the in New York wanted to reduce my salary by 35%. So I was like, oh, there's no room but going up. So I ended up moving to L.A. And, I, you know, and all these stores closed. All these boring stores that were suffering already mm-hmm. just fell off the radar. And the stores that stuck around were the ones that had really great concepts. So there's sort of a beauty about a recession, not that anyone wants to have a recession, Mm -hmm. but there's this culling that happens where businesses that are really solid business models will always find their way out the other side, Mm -hmm. probably stronger. And those that were kind of just kind of skating along, like the rubber hits the road and you're out of business. Yeah. There's sort of, you know, it's just not possible anymore. No. But I feel now sort of where in that moment where there's sort of a glut of of brands and concepts and sort of where I walk through these shows and I'm sort of like, where are all these brands going to go? Well, yeah, it's a really, really loud space now. Like, you know, when I first started, I had to find the brands. And now we get on average 16 to 22 brands sending me boxes that I didn't even ask for. And my mornings start off with like cleaning out my email box of like so many brands like wanting to talk. And that leads me to like saying like, you know, when I started my business, I only work with brands that have their own formulations. Mm -hmm. I don't work with brands that are private label. Mm -hmm. I can tell when they're private label because I know how many units they're running at a time. I'm like, there's no way that it's your formula if you can run a thousand units or a few hundred units at a time that's someone else's formula. So I have, I get a little discouraged by brands like that because again, going back to integrity, I love working with people that have integrity, brands that have integrity and brand founders that are creating brands for the right reasons. Um, what I've found in the last decade is people are creating brands because they've heard that they can sell it for a hundred to a billion dollars, a hundred million to a billion dollars, which that's, you know, I think you should just try auditioning and trying to become a superstar. Or play because, the lottery. Yeah, it's probably it's, easier. It's probably easier, <laughs> clearly. And like they think because they've read an article or even one of my brand, one of my distribution brands that I helped build for a long time, I realized later on after I worked so hard launching it that the owners read a book about creating an all green brand and that it would sell for a lot of money. So going back to, I really like working with people that come from a genuine place that have integrity that are creating a product or a company 
that serves a purpose, that also it comes from a genuine place, mm-hmm. and that they own their own formulas. I'd rather work with a brand that has one SKU, but it's their formula, and we can build on that and just launch more products after that. I also only work with doctor brands that are published doctors, mm-hmm. that are doctors that actually also have accredited patient base, mm-hmm. and they have a practice. Right. Um, I have an issue with doctor brands that don't have a practice or are published, and I can't mm-hmm. find any published documents right. about their studies. I, w- I don't want to use their product on my face. Right. Um, and so my job as a brand manager and an, as a distributor is really to vet the, the business and, mm-hmm. like, get through all the bullshit. Right. Sorry, am I allowed to say that on here? You can say that. And, you know, get through through (laughs) all that because there's so much noise and so many influencers coming into my office because they're influencers and they're creating a brand. And then they're private labeling that brand because there's all these manufacturers creating products for these people because they know they can make money off of them, too. So there's a lot of there's a lot there's a lot of lot of a lot of noise, a lot of noise. And then there's only a few brands that are coming out the other side. Yep. So I think this is the perfect way to segue into two really hot topics that we'll go into next. Ooh, I feel like we're on The View. Amazon (laughs) and Barneys. (laughs) And now, here's our Trend Minute, brought to you by big thinkers that aren't afraid to make predictions. I'm Navarth Batriwala from The Beauty Conversation, and I'm here to talk about trends. Let's talk about emotional retail. So what's exciting in bricks and mortar now? While brands are spent on magic mirrors and AI in store, we're actually noticing it's still discovery, interactivity, a community that's driving emotional purchases in beauty retail. So, for example, at Glossier and Selfridges, pop-ups have been used to drive intrigue and excitement. In particular, Selfridges has had success with a Pat McGrath takeover and an experimental perfume club concession in which customers can play alchemists, creating their own concoctions from more than 50,000 scent combinations. And I've tried this and it's really good fun because you kind of feel a bit like a magician concocting your own unique fragrances. So you have that real personal element to it. Meanwhile, in Paris's new Dover Street Parfum market, it's all about the unexpected with a bit of theatre. So there's a high-low mix of skincare, fragrance and makeup alongside pop-up mini exhibitions. Again, the secret weapon here is Sarah Andelman from Colette. Now, she's the consultant that's worked on this. And she is the person who really kind of brought that idea of curation to beauty retail, you know, really bringing it that unexpected excitement. UK chain Boots is overhauling its stores and following in the footsteps of Ulta and Sephora with discovery areas, live demonstrations and niche brands to attract those younger customers. Now, at the other end of the scale, Harrods has expanded its beauty hall by 53% with a bigger focus on cool discovery brands and interactive masterclasses. That's your Trend Minute. I'm Navaz Batliwala. And for more of our insights, go to The Beauty Conversation on Instagram and sign up to our newsletter. As a brand, the relationship you have with your contract manufacturer is a fundamental part of the supply chain and your success. Happy Farm Botanicals marries innovation with old-fashioned customer service. Located in the D.C. metro area, Happy Farm Botanicals is a leader in custom solutions for prestige brands specializing in non-toxic and natural formulations. Their full-time in-house team works with brands from ideation to product development through manufacturing and fill. For more information, visit happyfarmbotanicals.com. So that was a very big sigh when I mentioned <laughs> Amazon and Barney's. <sighs> Why? <laughs> well, you know, I think after choosing this to be my career for the last 22 years, at first, you know, when the Amazon started coming out, my son used to say, Dad, you're going to have to really get behind Amazon because it is the future. And he's right. You know, most of our brands that sell on Amazon luxury or even fulfilled for Amazon, it's it's gotten to be like 50 to 51% of their business. Well, it's very interesting because, you know, I see a lot of similarities between QVC and Amazon. So remember back in the day yep. when 
being on QVC was sort of the kiss of death. Mm-hmm. And you were it was thought to be very sort of down market and, you know, all of these things. And philosophy did it because they had to financially. Yeah. They weren't getting the revenue they needed. And take and Leslie Blodgett with yeah. Bare Minerals, those people sort of changed the perception of QVC to sort of fast forward, you know, everyone wants to be on QVC. Yeah. And I sort of I guess very early on because I was working with retailers that had figured this out, independent retailers Mm -hmm. that were selling brands on Amazon and making a killing. And I felt like the canary in the gold mine. And I was just like, you know, every client, I was like, you really need to consider Amazon. Are you really going to say no to that many eyeballs? And they would look at me like I had 10 heads. (laughs) Um, And now it's just sort of, I kind of feel like the beauty industry had its head in the sand. And now everyone, you know, is kind of playing catch up. And some brands really had like massive cleanup to do because they weren't controlling it. Mm -hmm. And they, you know, they weren't paying attention to it. And now, you know, like you said, it's a really important part of revenue. It's an important part of revenue it's also important for brand presence and awareness also like you were saying the cleanup you know a lot of our young brands because they didn't want to go into amazon early on there was all these independent retailers or even like all these retailers we don't even know how they got our inventory and so working with amazon luxury or amazon we could clean that up really quickly so i think we chose to do a few of our brands and we noticed very fast that it was a very profitable great business model to work with Amazon, but it also increased brand awareness throughout the country. And so even when people like, or we had retailers like, you're selling to Amazon, customers would walk into their store or their salon and be like, oh, I know that brand. I've seen it. So now we have a lot more awareness and it's not, it's not shunned upon anymore. I remember the days of when philosophy did yeah. do QVC and Barney's exited, exited philosophy them. and Arcana got exited too. Cause yeah. they did another TV, you know, like all these brands were doing, you know, and, and I think when Amazon, you know, one of our retailers that is anti, if you sell to Amazon, there's another department store, which comes mm-hmm. from the same area of the country as Amazon. I'm not going to say yeah. the names, but like, it's another big department store. They choose if you, not to carry a brand if it's also on Amazon Luxury. And that was part of their business model for about three years. And now they're changing their minds. Well, I think that, you know, in a similar way to, you know, when a brand would go on QVC, retailers would see a bump in store because it was like a paid commercial. And I think now you can't discount the fact that, you know, if you're looking, if a consumer is looking for a beauty brand, I, I think the stat is something like, 54%, 54%, like there more people go on Amazon than Google mm-hmm. um, to search and research a brand. And that's really powerful. So even as a retailer, you know, I think I think what I've seen is that retailers want to see how you're doing Amazon yeah. and are you controlling it. And I think another thing that brands don't think about is, you know, if you are either raising money Mm -hmm. or contemplating an exit, Mm -hmm. how you run your Amazon business is sort of a very good indication on how you run your business. If you are messy on Amazon, you're probably running a very messy business. So it's sort of like (laughs) a very interesting window into brands. Mm -hmm. I think Amazon business has become one of those metrics that investors look for. And I agree with that. One of the models that I looked at when I was contemplating working with Amazon is there's a group called Luxury Brand Partners. Mm -hmm. And they they had Orbe before they sold it and Mm R&Co. And they chose not to put those brands at Sephora, but they chose to go into the Amazon route. And I was like, this is a very clear, smart company. And they're only sold at salons and very key retailers. Actually, in all the retailers I sell my brands to, those brands were also sold to. So when I saw that they were partnering with Amazon Luxury, I was like, okay, this is a really smart kind of channel that we have to focus on. And they actually always have run their business very clean and perfect and structured. And like you said, I saw how structured all their businesses are and where they kind of were their channels of distribution. And I'm sure they followed my channels of distribution Mm -hmm. as well. And I was like, okay, we're in. If they're doing it. I'm doing it. And then I think a lot of people saw me putting brands in there and then people were like, okay, it's safe. Yeah. And I think that's now everyone, now you have to like set it up 
and it's more of a drop ship model right. than them purchasing. But the I product. also think that you know when I talk to small brands, mm-hmm. you know they think that Amazon, you know, Amazon is very good at the romancing of <laughs> brands to sort of get them on the platform. Mm-hmm. Fantastic job. But I think what brands need to realize is that ultimately Amazon cares about the consumer and their consumer. Mm -hmm. They don't care about the brands. The brands are kind of a means to an end. So I think that brands need to actually go into Amazon with their eyes wide open because Amazon's not going to help them build their business. No, they're not. And it's actually interesting because now Amazon has created their kind of um, service side for salons. Right. And so a lot of like, you know, I'm also a hair care distributor to the salon business. Mm-hmm. So it's like for me, it's like you look at that model. And now they've created a whole portal for salons just to order through them and skip the distributor. Right. So there's they are really on top of everything faster than, you know, they are really a beast to to, right. to, to watch. And like I that's one of the reasons why I actually ended up opening my 3PL because I realized that the warehousing business is something that's never going to come to an end. That is true. And so I always knew that so- someone's got to be shipping these products out to people. Right. And why not do it, like, on the indie level? I mean, I think at the end of the day, yeah. Amazon's sort of a widget. Uh, you know, it's category agnostic. Yeah. And the better you know how the widget works, the bigger yeah. your business is going to be. Exactly. All right. So let's do it. Uh, let's talk about Barney's. Another sigh. I know it. You know, I think for both of us, Barney's played such, kind of such a pivotal role in our careers. I mean, I can speak for myself. You know, when I was, you know, building the the Bliss catalog, you know, it was Heidi at Bliss. So yeah. Heidi Mannheimer was the DMM of Barney's at yeah. the time. I was kind of building this catalog thing at Bliss. Robin Kohutching was doing her thing on the West Coast. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Barney's really was the first incubator of indie brands. Um, They were the first ones to have sort of the apothecary and, you know, gave so many of the brands that we've built kind of their window to the world. And actually – you know, Kiehl's, Malin and Getz, like these small brands that were, you know, founder driven mm-hmm. are now sort of strategic heritage brands. And it's really, I mean, it's it's really sad because I think there's this cultural touch point that's lost yeah. in New York. And there's, you know, this kind of vacuum in the in the indie world. Mm-hmm. So do you want to share a little bit about like you know, your history with Barney's and yeah, but also, yeah, I mean, but you know, also beyond that, I think there are a lot of lessons to be learned, right? For a lot of brands, they signed exclusives with Barney's, right? So Barney's is a great marketing, Mm -hmm. was a great marketing vehicle. You know, you really tried to just not lose money, but it served a purpose. And I think everyone knew it was obvious they were having financial troubles Mm -hmm. but like what are also the lessons that you can learn in kind of this uncertain retail time of okay you need the you need the window of a barney's Mm -hmm. for a marketing purpose Mm -hmm. but how do you also sort of protect yourself because there are an awful lot of people that were left hanging oh yeah um including myself (laughs) with law i mean you know for for indie brands Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter. $5,000 is a lot of money. So there are a lot of people owed a lot of money. And I guess, you know, is there a way to sort of take lessons and and learn? All these brands are now kind of negotiating new deals um, with brands that may or may not be more financially stable. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Well, it's interesting because, you know, Barney's did help build my career. You know, it's it will it built my career. Um, I started on the floor there, but it started before that. Like when I was a kid, my aunt LeClaire, who was like my auntie Mame, she was a customer that used to eat at my parents' restaurant in Hartford. She uh, didn't have any grandchildren and she was an auctioneer and she was mm-hmm. pretty fabulous. Like she just had this like very Anna Wintour haircut and she would sit and eat dinner by herself. And I found myself eating dinner with her all the time. And then one day she asked my parents if they could, she could borrow me. Uh-huh. For the for the Saturday <laughs> afternoon because she had to go into New York City uh-huh. to go to Barney's, and my mom said yes. My dad was very upset because he needed a dishwasher at the <laughs> restaurant that day, but luckily that afternoon she took me to Barney's and we she picked me up in her like vintage Aston Martin, 
And she was an older woman in her 70s at the time. And she had like a little like um, back spine uh-huh. disease. So she was a little hunched. Uh-huh. So people looked at her and couldn't figure her out. But she drove into New York City in an hour and a half, which would usually take two hours. She valeted her car. We walked into Barney's. And I remember just the smell, the music, the customers. I looked around. The sales associates were stunning. I saw like famous, well, for me, they were famous, but they were all my favorite soap opera actors uh-huh. shopping. And so I thought to myself, wow, this is a magical place. And she taught me about stationery. She took me to the stationery store, taught me about Filofax and three-ply cashmere. So much in that one afternoon uh-huh. that the rest, the next decade of my life, all I did was dream about being able to shop or work at Barney's. And then, yeah. you know, that was 1989 when that happened. And then in 1999, I started working at Barney's. And so I started on the floor and, and, and you know, I watched some of the best indie brands start there. Like when I started in the apothecary area, there was brands like, you know, like Aesop started mm-hmm. on yep. a few shelves back there. Um, you know, like we even had brands like um, like Red Flower was started there, right. but like Philip B started there. We had Davinus with a first point of of retail in the United Diptyque. States. Diptyque, literally the Pressmans brought the candles in their suitcases yeah. from Paris. Molten Brown. Molten Brown. There's so, the the yeah. list goes on and it was just so amazing to have been able to work in that area. But then, you know, like when I started launching my own brands for my own business, it was a big platform. Every brand really wanted, we had to, like my goal was to get it, the brand into Barney's because as soon as I got into Barney's, every other store in the country would want it. So that was my strategic side of it. And it what's painful for me to see is there isn't a lot of places that kind of have, you know, that fragrance bar yeah. or that apothecary. I mean, they really ha- took a curatorial approach yeah. to merchandising that I think is lacking, especially sort of in the kind of department store yeah. world. And the thing is, I think what ended up happening is the the customer doesn't want the department store experience anymore. Yeah. They want to go back to maybe like how the original Bendel's was or No, like... you know, that's the irony of it, right? <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I I remember when I was so angry when Bendel's closed yeah. because I did some research and you know, Bendel's was the first um retailer to bring Chanel to the United States. Oh and there you had this visionary who essentially created shop-in shops or pop-up shops and created an experience a hundred years ago. And I think that the connective tissue between the failure of both of these brands is the influx of money. Yeah. So all of a sudden you have people with big bank accounts and ideas of, I'm going to take this beautiful business that was someone's blood, sweat, and tears Mm -hmm. And I'm going to make a billion-dollar business out of brown and white stripes. And ultimately, you know, it becomes a business decision. Oh, that didn't work out. You know, we'll just pull the plug. Mm-hmm. But it's sort of like there's no respect to history no. or what it was or what it took to become that. And I think the same thing happened with Barney's. You know, you had this family-run business with a real point of view. Mm-hmm. And then money came in. Yeah. And then it changed hands. And I remember I was like thinking to myself, this is the beginning of the end. When I went up to Madison Avenue and I went there the day they were ripping up the mosaic tile <gasps> and removing the fish tank. Yeah. And I was just like, who the hell rips up a hand-laid mosaic floor? Yeah. And the end result was, you know, a flagship that looked like it could have been in Dallas, Texas. There was like they kind of to me, it was like this chipping away of the soul of what made this retailer great. That mosaic wall and floor was incredible. And even though because that's where the cosmetic floor was when I started was where that mosaic and the jewelry area was. Then they moved us downstairs. So when I walked in, they were like just tearing it apart. They put the they laid these square tiles. It was horrible. I was like, oh, this is the beginning of the, the end. end. But, you know, there's a, a, also a perverse irony. Yeah. So I don't know if you've gone up there lately, <laughs> but I was up there this this weekend. And, I mean, th- it, it is like some bargain basement. I don't even know what. They're not even cleaning the awnings. Oh. There's bird shit all over them. Like, I can't even. I don't want <laughs> to. On Madison Avenue. And there's kind of this perverse irony that Barney started as a discounter. Yep. And is ending as a discounter. As a discounter. 
I mean, on that note, do you really think that there's a future for Barney's? No. And you don't. I think that it's going to be a place probably online, but I think the beginning to the end is when Barney's held the luxury space yeah. in beauty and in fragrance, and then Netta Portay came along. And Barney's wasn't fast enough with creating. They were creating. slow on the digital. They were slow on the digital, and they lost the opportunity to actually sustain their customer base because everyone started going to Net-A-Porter, me included, mm-hmm. because I loved the way they sent me my packages, and I loved how quickly I would get them. Again, and Barney's would send it to me in a box with popcorn and my expensive fragrance thrown in a box without any thought. Right. So I knew that that was already the beginning to then when that's how they were treating their customers online business side and then i also realized it when they just had no point of difference anymore yeah and everything they did like when they launched a new wall of product that had already been done somewhere else like oh i remember cbd came out but everyone else launched a cbd area actually before barney's did too right so it was just very frustrating oh face masks that's when it all started when, oh, the beginning of the end. The beginning was of the end. Face masks. Because, like, you know, Anthro had a face mask wall. So mm-hmm. did Sephora. Everyone had to have one. So Barney's had to have one. So you knew that they were trying to play catch up and they weren't thinking for themselves and they weren't creating an experience for themselves. And the main reason why people still go to the seventh floor at Bergdorf Goodman is because every season it's a new theme yeah. and they're creating an experience. So even like I have to go see the holiday floor while I'm here and And Santa wearing Etro there's nothing better oh my god I love it and then uh, and so that the experience they they're creating an experience for you to come in and so I think that's where I knew it was going to be over I think you know for me I don't I'm not upset about it yes I lost I'm actually one of the people that lost a significant amount of money they owed me a lot of money um and I trusted my buyers and you know I probably shouldn't have trust them but I you know my 20 years of working 10 years there, 10 years as my own business. I look at it as like my MBA. I had to pay my MBA degree somehow. And so that's the way I'm looking at it. What really hurts me is the 2,600 people losing their jobs. There's a woman that worked downstairs in um, the stock room. Mm -hmm. Her name is um, Sarah. And she has great grandchildren, but she's been there for 37 years. And she, for me, like thinking about where she's going or thinking of these other cosmetic cosmetic associates that I've known since I was in my early 20s who are like they were my age now when I started so they're at retirement age but they still need to work and they're like who's gonna hire me right so for me it was like yes I lost a lot of money but I'm 43 and a half years old and I know this is a learning curve and what I'm taking away from it I think brands should take away from it is you can't just trust one store being your end-all be-all mm-hmm Fortunately, I knew that I had to build my relationships with other department stores. So I do have great relationships with the Neemans, the Nordstroms. You know, we even have great relationships with the Ultas of the world mm-hmm. because, you know, a lot of brands are launching an Ulta now too. Right. Just Ulta. Yep. Direct-to-consumer and Ulta. Yep. Direct-to-consumer and Sephora. I'm actually just signing brands just to do, to launch them into Sephora and Ulta now. Mm-hmm. Like I have a whole different model that's just to launch them into those majors. So it's like, you know, it's like, it's interesting because the you don't need the Barneys anymore. I just, I think I'm being selfish because for me, I always need Barneys because when yeah. I go there, it's my alma mater. It's my right. heart. It's my soul. Um, when I walk the floor, I actually stopped walking it before I saw any sale signs. And I went up there before the auction went through and mm-hmm. went up to Fred's and I said my goodbyes. I know I'm having my last <laughs> lunch at Fred's on Friday. Are you? Oh, can you have a French fry for I me? I know, right? Um, I just have decided that I, it's like yeah. I, I drove by the Beverly Hills store and I saw all those yellow and red. Yes. And I was in West Hollywood driving last week and there's somebody like flipping one of those like pancake signs, which is like normally for like mattress stores and saying, Closing sale of Barney's. I mean, all have must you go. seen the, the TV commercials they're running here? Oh, I have not. It is, it's tragic. I'm glad I don't watch that much TV. You know, I think kind of coming back to integrity, you know, you talk about kind of integrity a lot. What are the sort of lessons, I guess, around integrity that you take away from that whole Barney's experience? I think what I would I take away is like I have had relationships in there and I wish the people that I had worked with had some more integrity and would have given me some um, heads up heads up since they know that I am also a self-funded company. And and so I kind of like I don't want to like. Just, I'm not going to like put any negative energy mm-hmm. to, towards it, but I am like, I'm a little bit like, I've just realized that you just can't trust anybody. 
Um, you have to go with your instincts. And yep. I've always followed my instincts and I probably should have followed them earlier, but I never wanted my brands to look poor right. or look terrible in the store. So I kept shipping them when I knew I shouldn't have. The great thing is I've had my business for 10 yes. years and I have three different companies. And so literally they all self kind of right. move like a, a machine. But um, I take away from it, my integrity side is like, you've. I've always had integrity and I'm always a man of my word. And I will always do what's best for the brand I work for, mm -hmm. th my relationships, because those relationships are decades of relationships. Right. And so that's why I think when I started, integrity was the word, because yeah. for me, it's like the reason why we're still close friends yep. and colleagues is because you have so much integrity. Thank you. And I love that about you. And you're always, you know, I always, when I think about you, I'm like, I'm always trying to think to myself, I was like, you know, it's always about staying relevant. Yeah. And, you know, we've been in the industry for a long, a long time, time and it's about staying relevant Yeah, and also changing with the times. Yep. And a lot of people don't know how to change with the times. And so for me, it's like my integrity has is one thing that can never change. And it's yours. And it's mine. No my, one can take it away. No one can take it away. My grandpa always said, it's your, he's like, oh, your name is everything. Maybe I shouldn't have named my company with my own name. <laughs> <laughs> so just one last thought yes. kind of in wrapping up. How do you square all the bankruptcies and store closings yeah. that are happening on one end of the spectrum with the door expansions that are happening sort of on the other side? So Ulta, while they've had a couple rough quarters, yeah. is expanding. Sephora is expanding and evolving. Mm -hmm. And interestingly, you know, people never talk about the dollar store, and that's not sort of where our businesses yeah. are. But dollar stores are killing Everywhere. it. Everywhere. And expanding like fire. So, yeah. you know, I think what do you think the future of retail is? Like if you can fast forward 10 years, like what does traditional retail look like and how does it dovetail – with sort of online and digital. I when I I was just I was having this conversation just recently with my team. Um you know, I actually look at the luxury space changing significantly. Our luxury space is is pretty much, you know, the Ultas and Sephoras in the US is luxury in the United States. Yeah. People for a lot of people. For a lot of people that is luxury. My son's in the army. And so when I go visit him, there's only an Ulta in those towns. And there's a like Home Goods and a TJ Maxx and Marshalls. And that's where the middle class and the upper middle class shops in that area. And so for me, it's like, you know, I do see specialty stores still being around. I see a lot of the dot-com businesses growing. I think a lot of the dot-coms will also close. Mm -hmm. A lot of the dot-coms that I've been selling to before really? Amazon that actually used Amazon to drive their business, they're slowly going to like dissipate because mm -hmm. they are they their only point of difference was their website and amazon and so now that people are going amazon direct and selling to amazon they no longer can sell to amazon mm -hmm. so i'm seeing a lot of those dot coms probably going away um i do see like we had talked about before i see an influx of a lot of young conceptual stores mm -hmm. coming to fruition i do see a lot of new ideas that people are working on i definitely think the online platform and the specialty platform will always be alive. Mm -hmm. And I think the department store platform, we're going to see all these people that are expanding, I think are going to expand and then have to contract. contract. And I think a lot of these department stores are going to stop opening these massive mm -hmm. department stores. I really think the future is a smaller footprint, footprint which has just an evolving, like we were talking about pop-ups and mm -hmm. just energy where it's like, you know, Nordstrom's does this pop-in that they always change mm -hmm. every season. And it's one of their best revenue areas of their business because it's always newness that they're bringing right. into that. So I think a lot of these department stores are going to just really kind of go smaller in their footprint. Mm -hmm. And I think it's not going to happen. It'll happen in the next 10 years. Yeah. It'll be much more conceptual. Like we're saying, like stores much more like Hirsch Lifers. Yeah. You know, it's funny because Hirschleifers isn't online. You you yeah. only can buy in store and they're still a healthy business. Oh my God, so healthy. And people don't realize it. It's like, they don't have to go online. The customer goes there because it's an experience yeah. and it's in Manhasset. Yep. And it, people on their way to the Hamptons stop there. People from all over the country stop in there. I stop in there because yep. I want to see what they're doing. And they don't have to have a yep. .com. No. You know, so there is still a really big space for retail our, my dear friend that created 4510, Brian Bulky, mm -hmm. created a new concept called the Conservatory. And he opened it one, one here in Hudson Yards. But, you know, I he, the one he opened, the Conservatory in Dallas, is killing it. And he opened another small one in another area of the country. And I think 
that is an area where he is curating right. and creating the experience. And I think that is kind of the future of retail for luxury retail. And then, of course, it's going to be the Ultas right. and the Sephoras and the Amazons of the world. And not, even Target's going to be yeah. luxury, too. So is there one piece of advice either that's been given to you or that you've experienced that you think could make a profound impact um, in someone's business? Yeah. You know, years ago, like an 83-year-old Fortune 500 owner of a company said to me, you can never stop learning and you never know everything. Um, What I've noticed with brands that kind of hurt themselves is the brand owner knows everything and has no room for advice or criticism. Um, The one bit of advice I do give young entrepreneurs and brand owners is to just listen to everyone around them. Um, not to get too caught up with like the emotions and also to stay true to what they believe in and to keep their packaging strong and their integrity and the ingredients very strong and solid with their formulations and also having an incredible brand story. But always keep learning from the people around you. Thanks, David. For David, it's a matter of integrity. The beauty category has never been more crowded and the retail landscape more complicated. Developing a distribution strategy with the right partners at the right cadence, achieving growth and profitability is an art form. David and his team know how to make retail magic happen. As Neiman Marcus and Nordstrom enter the Manhattan retail landscape, icons like Barney's, Henry Bendel's, and Lord & Taylor have closed. The irony is, there's never been a better time, a more meaningful time, for the kind of choice and the kind of service and the kind of differentiated offering these stores had 100 years ago. It's what consumers want now. Creating experience at retail isn't about gimmicks or creating Instagrammable moments. It requires identifying, dissecting, and making each and every potential consumer touchpoint intentional and meaningful. This isn't superficial window dressing work. It requires putting yourself in the customer's shoes, hard work, and throwing out preconceived ideas. Every brand has a story to tell and needs someone like David Parada and his team to help tell that story to retailers and customers who need to hear it, leaving them wanting and learning and buying more. So in the end, it's a matter of integrity. I'm Kelly Kovac. See you next time. Hi, my name is David Prada. To me, what matters is loving what you do for a living and enjoying it every day, having integrity in what you believe in and in the profession that you follow through in. It's a Matter Of is a production of Beauty Matter LLC, copyright 2020. You can find more content and insights on beautymatter.com and follow us on social media at Beauty Matter Official. This is Mouth Media Network. Amplify and connect.